In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear people of God, how does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire? These are questions that Aaron Burr asks in Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton, which, as I'm sure most of you know, is now streaming directly into your home for the low, low price of $6.99 a month. Thank you, Disney Empire. You're welcome. There's plenty of hype surrounding Hamilton. And frankly, it's warranted. The wordplay, the play's commentary about history and storytelling, the story's retelling about whose America this is, it's pretty amazing. Many of the critiques of the musical are warranted too. As one writer recently noted, Hamilton, though brilliant, idealizes the founders and dangerously elides their realities of slavery. I think that's right. But I really like Lin-Manuel Miranda's response to these charges, especially given how common it is to hear public figures defend themselves and double down on their positions. Appreciate you so much, he wrote to one critic. All of the criticisms are valid. The sheer tonnage of complexities and failings of these people I couldn't get or wrestled with but cut. I took six years and fit as much as I could in a two and a half hour musical. Did my best. It's all fair game. Now that's not exactly an apology, and perhaps there's even the slightest bit of pushback embedded in that response, but come on. To hear one person say that another person's criticisms are valid, to admit that something that you spent, work, spent years working on is imperfect, to invite more conversation and critique, that's downright refreshing. It's a model of public discourse we simply don't get enough of right now. And it ought to convict many of us, and I include myself in that. Speaking now of my own personal failings, I can tell you that when I'm challenged, even if it's done with the utmost love and gentleness, I usually either get defensive, almost always responding with much less gentleness, or I withdraw from the conversation and the relationship. I either react too aggressively or I become too controlled, too calculating. Do you want to know one of the main reasons that I like Hamilton? I like it because it challenges me precisely on this point. For me, the musical functions as a repentance narrative. More on that in a minute. Today's gospel reading from Matthew about the weeds and the wheat is also a repentance narrative, a story whose purpose is to rend the reader's heart, to tear at it, so that we might turn and be forgiven. At least that's how I typically read this passage. I don't know about you, but the first place my mind goes when I read verses like this is, am I wheat or am I a weed? Am I good soil or am I thorny soil? Am I a sheep or a goat? Questions like these invite us to consider our sin and turn back to the source of our life Praying with the psalmist, be gracious to us, O Lord, for you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to our prayer. 
Listen to our plea for grace. In the day of our trouble, we call upon you, for you answer us. Our Lord answers us when we repent. In my death and resurrection, Christ promises, you are the golden wheat of the field. You are rich and fertile soil. You're even my very own sheep. That's the gospel. Thanks be to God. Since we're all sinners in need of the grace of Jesus Christ, the importance of repentance narratives can't be overstated. However, when I first read today's passage, I confessed that I found the idea of preaching repentance to this community at this moment troubling. Many in this congregation have been wounded, and I don't have a very good sense of where people are at or what they're going through. What's more, and this is one of the challenges of streaming online, there may be people listening right now who I don't even know and who don't know me. Pe people are, who are suffering from depression or anxiety, people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19, people who have lost their jobs, even their loved ones, people confronting the daily struggles of systemic racism. While every human being is desperately in need of repentance, a call to repentance may not be the message that some listeners need to hear most right now, especially from this place. And yet, for others, it may be the message that we need most of all. As a writing teacher, I view this as a rhetorical problem. Right now, I'm speaking to a complex audience, and each member is going through something different. How can my words possibly address everyone well? When you start to think about it, this problem isn't really unique to this particular moment, amplified perhaps in this moment, but not unique to it. In any community, at any time, we're likely to find those who urgently need to repent and those whose most urgent need is to be comforted. Furthermore, each individual person has multiple needs. We each have things for which we need to repent and other things for which we need to be comforted. How can one speak to a diverse community or to a single but complex human being? How can a single message rend what needs rending and mend what needs mending? One important answer, of course, is that it can't, at least not apart from the Holy Spirit. While speakers should always try to get their, to know their audiences as best they can, no human order can really come close to addressing the communication problem that the preacher faces. I do not envy this job. <laughs> when scripture is preached, we must pray that the spirit of God living in us would minister, truly minister to each of us. It is the spirit of God that rends what needs rending and mends what needs mending. This rhetorical problem has a spiritual solution. And in addition to the workings of scripture, I'm sorry, the workings of the Spirit, Scripture itself also makes this possible. And we see an example of this by looking at the type of text that Jesus uses in today's reading, the parable. Parables are a remarkable literary genre. Their characters usually lack proper names or identifying characteristics. That is, they're usually stories about a certain man or a sower or the owner of a field not James or Arnie. Consequently, they are, as I once heard Alan Jacobs describe them, hermeneutically promiscuous. They're open to a variety of interpretations. Who or what are the weeds? 
Are they our sins? Are they trials we'll face in this life? Are they my enemies? Do they represent me? Without the storyteller's interpretation, we don't really know. And so readings can proliferate, and some of them can be very bad indeed. Let me offer you an example. This summer, the Beitler family has been trying to get our yard and gardens into shape, and I've been doing a fair bit of weeding. It's a task that I despise, and I'm not very good at, and I know those things are reciprocally related. At any rate, a couple of weeks ago, after I had agreed to preach on this message, I was trying to pull up some clover, and the clover was winning, and I found myself thinking how nice it would be if Jesus' story was actually about weeds. Leave that clover, declares the Lord God. My angels are on it. Why don't you grab your sunglasses, a book, a tall glass of lemonade, and head over to the patio? You want to shine like the sun? Why not do so by relaxing in the sun? Alas. Particularly bad reading of the passage. And I'm not saying that I didn't get a snooze in. Ask Britta. I'm very good at finding ways to get the weekend nap. But clearly, one can't make their way from Matthew 13 to the patio and say that they have read Scripture rightly. When we don't have Jesus' interpretation, and even often when we do, it's not so much that we read parables, but that they read us. My interpretation tells me something about who I am. Anyone who reads the parable of the weeds and the wheat as justification to quit weeding and lounge in the sun probably struggles with the sin of sloth, at least when it comes to yard work. That's me. I appreciate the way our children's curriculum explains this function of parables to the kids. Our curriculum is very tactile, and the material we use to tell parables is contained in golden boxes, and I do have a prop. Golden boxes like this one. Whenever we tell our children parables, the catechist says, I wonder if this is a parable. Hmm, it might be. Parables are very precious, like gold. And this box is gold. This looks like a present. Well, parables are like presents. They've already been given to us. We can't buy them or take them or steal them. They're already ours. There's another reason this might be a parable. It has a lid. And sometimes parables seem to have lids on them. But when you lift the lid of a parable, there's something very precious inside. I know. Let's take off the lid and see if this is a parable. And then the catechist peeks under the lid, building anticipation among the children for the story. Without Jesus to lift the lid, this curriculum gently teaches our children, we simply won't understand the meaning of these stories rightly. What's so remarkable about this literary genre then is that it allows Jesus to respond to different people with very different uh, needs in multiple ways. Let's consider three different readers of today's parable. A hard-hearted reader, a penitent reader, that is, one whose heart will be broken by the text, and a reader who comes to the text with a wounded heart. The hard-hearted reader simply dismisses the parable or interprets it in a way that justifies himself. Perhaps he has complete confidence that he's already righteous, already wheat, 
and therefore he needs no follow-up conversation with Jesus. He goes on his way and thus remains outside of the kingdom. The parable may still do its work on him one day. If he considers his reading, he may come to realize that he has been read and found wanting. However, for now, he doesn't have ears to hear. Then there is the penitent reader, the one who rends his heart when he hears the parable. He thinks he may be a weed, or perhaps he is simply confused or unsettled by the story. Either way, he seeks Jesus out. And when he does, Jesus tells him the meaning and eventually invites him to turn and die to himself. The one who reads the parable in this way, with repentance, is in very good company indeed, joining the order of readers of the contrite heart, which includes readers like Augustine, and stretches all the way back to King Josiah, who, when the lost book of the law was found and read to him, cried and tore his robes. King Josiah repented, and as a result, he found he received a blessed word from God. Because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. I want to get to the third reader in a second. But before I do, just let me say, this response to scripture may be one of the greatest things the church has to offer in the public sphere right now. Confession unto repentance, to borrow an argument from the theologian Jennifer McBride, would likely be a very powerful means of public Christian witness. What if we Christians were to do a better job of repenting, not just for individual sins, but for our participation in unjust structures? And what if we spent more time retelling to one another the stories that have softened our hearts? What a valuable practice that would be. That brings me back to why I appreciated Hamilton so much. As I said at the beginning, when someone challenges me, even if it's done with the utmost love and gentleness, I either get defensive or I withdraw, reacting too aggressively, or I get too controlled, restrained. Watching Hamilton, for me, held up a mirror to these two typical responses. As you know if you've seen it, the musical hinges on the relationship between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. And in the musical, Burr is always restrained, controlled. Hamilton is always audacious, bold. Burr keeps all his plans close to his chest, as he puts it. Hamilton can't understand why Burr is always standing to the side. Hamilton's not about to throw away his shot. Because both men are locked into these positions, they despise each other. And neither one of them really possesses the practical virtue of phronesis, which is sometimes described as practical wisdom or prudence. The rhetorician James Jasinski has written about prudence, and he's noted, and I'm adapting him here, that this virtue is actually characterized by competing um, emphases, restraint and audacity, depending on the needs of the situation. Sometimes, if you're a prudent person, you have practical wisdom, you actually need to act with audacity. You need to be bold. Sometimes you need to be controlled. Burr and Hamilton can't seem to move back and forth between these two poles. Sometimes their hardened stances means they get it right. 
Other times they don't. And the great irony of the story is that when they do finally switch roles, Burr acts with audacity and Hamilton with restraint, it goes horribly wrong. Watching Hamilton prompted me to reflect on my own typical responses to criticism. I seem to react like Burr and Hamilton at just the wrong times. For me, it reads as a parable about practical wisdom. And that's not just because of the two negative examples, but because of a positive one, George Washington. He's the one that's able to both rally the troops when it's necessary, and the one that's able to step down from his position of leadership. He's able to teach people how to say goodbye. He knows how to practice audacity and restraint at just the right moments. And then, of course, there's Eliza Hamilton, who quietly shows audience members another, even better way. More than any other character, she possesses the answer to Aaron Burr's question about how to emerge victorious from the quagmire. As Hamilton and Burr vie for control, trying to be in the room where it happens, Eliza repeatedly offers Alexander and us, the viewers, the steady heartbeat of love. And it's a love that's refined over the course of the musical from romantic love to familial love to agape love. I'm not going to tell you the ending, but it will break your heart. We need to tell one another such stories. And by the way, if my Hamilton example doesn't do it for you, it doesn't take long to find others. There are stories all around us that can soften our hearts. This week, this coming week, spend just a few moments reading the obituaries of John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and friend of all souls, J.I. Packer, who all died on Friday. Here's a snippet on John Lewis that I read in the New York Times this morning. In his memoir, Walking with the Wind, Mr. Lewis explains that there was, quote, something in the very essence of anguish that is liberating, cleansing, redemptive, adding that suffering touches and changes those around us as well. It opens us and those around us to a force beyond ourselves, a force that is right and moral, the force of righteous truth that is at the basis of human conscience. The essence of nonviolent life, he wrote, is the capacity to forgive. Quote, even as a person is cursing you to your face, even as he's spitting on you or push pushing a lit cigarette into your neck, the essence of nonviolent life is the capacity to understand that your attacker is as much a victim as you are. At, the, at bottom, the article continues, this philosophy of Mr. Lewis has rested upon the belief that people of goodwill would rouse themselves to combat evil and injustice. Irrespective of your, of your political leanings, the lives and actions of people like this can work on our hearts, making them soft and strong again, if we have ears to hear. That brings us back to the parable and the third reader. I've talked about the hard-hearted reader and the penitent reader. But what about the one who, though a sinner, is already brokenhearted? She comes to the text already wounded. To those who have been wronged or oppressed, Jesus' explanation suggests that the words of the parable may be heard as a promise of future restoration. The Son of Man will send his angels, he says, 
and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Yes, if you come to the text and your heart is already broken, you may hear in this passage the reminder that Jesus is on your side. The very same passage that calls the wrongdoer to repent is also, for those who have been wronged, a song of righteousness and justice. You see, Jesus isn't only speaking out of the tradition of King Josiah. He's also channeling the book of Daniel. N.T. Wright observes that, quote, the son of man in this passage echoes chapter 7, where one like the son of man is given the right to judge and rule over the monsters that have oppressed God's people. The fiery furnace echoes the passage about Daniel's friends in chapter 3. The righteousness shining like the sun reminds us of Daniel 13.2, a prediction of the resurrected glory of the people of God, unquote. A promise of justice and glory accompanies the parable's warning. And if you're among the wronged, the downtrodden, the marginalized, the oppressed, this is good news. Even as some are encouraged to rend their hearts, others are encouraged to take heart. Christ reigns. The sufferings of this present time, Paul writes in today's reading from Romans, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Even the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This power, the power of the spirit and the word to proclaim different but complementary truths simultaneously is not simply a function of hermeneutically promiscuous parables. When we consider scripture as a whole, we see myriad genres, narratives, prophecies, letters, apocalyptic literature, proverbs, chronologies, love songs, devotional poetry, songs of mercy, psalms of justice, all witnessing together in many voices. It's astonishing. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, the right words can find us and speak to us where we're at, softening our hearts, rending them, mending them, inscribing the law in their flesh, making them brave again, knitting our hearts to the Lord, filling them with the love of God. For in the end, all of these words and genres are part of the same agape song. I'm getting close to being done. But I wanted to give you a beautiful illustration of scripture's ability to speak to different people with different needs. It comes from Marilyn Robinson's remarkable book, Lila, the third book in her Gilead series. The character Lila has been deeply wounded throughout her life. And as a result, she finds it close, difficult to get close to anybody, including the man she marries, the Reverend John Ames. When you're scalded, Touch hurts, Robinson writes. It makes no difference if it's kindly meant. And Reverend Ames's world, which includes listening to baseball, talking theology, preaching, and a good deal of reading and writing in a small town in Iowa, is almost completely alien to Lila. Over the course of the story, as I've noted elsewhere, Lila becomes a kind of scribe of sorts, copying down long passages from the Bible. And the passages that she chooses to copy are some of the most peculiar and difficult to interpret, including passages from Ezekiel. 
Now, Ames is worried about this. He's worried that this is going to turn off Lila to Christianity. But his pastoral instincts are actually mistaken in this case. For it's precisely scripture's unusual and unsettling passages that speak to Lila and her past experience. It could be, she says, that the wildest, strangest things in the Bible were the places where it touched earth. And then in one of the book's most enduring, beautiful images, she compares the potency of the Bible with a whirlwind over the river, which draws up the bright river water, and then all of the other things that come in its path, plants, animals, and people. For Lila, who's been wounded and alienated from the world, it's precisely the strangeness of scripture that makes it hospitable. A dangerous hospitality, to be sure, but ultimately a transformative one. It would be, it would, as she says, of the whirlwind's power over people and their surroundings, it would change everything they thought they knew. What a remarkable thing. The very same passage that might rend Ames's heart or mine might comfort Lila's heart or yours. We serve a God who knows our needs and meets us there. He promises justice for the oppressed and grants mercy to the sinner. Let me close by offering you one final reading of today's parable, understood in terms of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've already seen that this parable sends away the hard-hearted, rends the heart of the penitent, and comforts the brokenhearted. But when read in light of Christ, it hints at an even greater promise, that both the mercy and justice of God might ultimately be brought together in the Son of Man, who though himself wheat, is cut down as a weed on behalf of those who trust in him. And as a result, he protects us from the fiery furnace, making us righteous, and refining us more and more into his likeness, so that we might shine like the sun. Amen. <laughs>